For those of you who were not here last Sunday, or that I have not had the pleasure of meeting yet, or who have not heard me preach here at Grace Covenant before, my name is Tim Coyle. I am a retired pastor, and my wife Mary and I moved here to Williamsburg three years ago this past March. Now, that doesn't mean that we were new to Grace Covenant, because for the previous about 18 years, when we would come down to visit Colonial Williamsburg, if we were here over a weekend, we would come to Grace Covenant to worship. And so when we moved here, this is the only church we came to. We found here what we were looking for, and we are very glad to be living here in Williamsburg and to be a part of this church and to have the opportunity to be able to teach God's word and occasionally even to preach. So last Sunday, we began looking at the closing verses of Psalm 73, beginning with verse 23. So let's read these verses uh, once again this morning. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. May God bless this reading of his word to our hearts this morning. So last week I said that in these verses that I just read, God shows us six ways in which he demonstrates his greatness by the goodness and the gifts he gives to his children. And we began by looking at Psalm 73, which tells a story. And we reviewed that story of how the, the writer of this psalm, Asaph, became envious of the wicked. And then in verse 17, he went into the sanctuary of God and came away with a whole different understanding of the lot of the wicked in this life. And he also gained a better understanding of himself. And so he concludes this psalm with what is really a prayer. Because if you notice in beginning with verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. These verses are addressed to God. And of course, because they're addressed to God, they are indeed a prayer. Now, I had, we had looked at this and we saw the, the first 
gift that God gives to his people that reflects his greatness is very simply his presence. And we talked about how significant that is, that this God who fills the universe, who occupies all of creation, who indeed is omnipresent, at the same time is personally present with each one of us. And then in the second place, in verse 24, we saw that God also provides for us direction in life. And so while the first point draws from God's omnipresence, the second point draws from God's omniscience, the fact that God knows all things, all things not only present, not only past, but even future. And because of that, and through that, God takes from his all-knowing capability and gives to us what we need, not only as finite beings, but fallen beings, to get through this life. And so this morning we come to the third concept, which we see in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now last week I said that we would look at the concluding four points of this passage this morning. But the more I looked into this passage and studied it, I realized there is far more here to share than what we would have time to do if we also considered the following three points. Unless you would like to stay here well into the afternoon. But I don't believe that's an option. So we're going to save those other three points for another time and focus our attention on verse 25. So you can look at it this way. You're going to be able to have your cake and eat it too. You're just not going to get it all this morning. But we'll save the rest for another time. So let's pray and we'll look into this verse. Our Father, we do give you praise and thanks for your goodness to us, for the way that you have provided so graciously unto us. We thank you, Father, that you are a God who is also our Heavenly Father. And we pray, Father, that through your Spirit, you would now quiet our hearts, open our minds to receive what you have for us in this passage this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I have to admit to you, I'm, I'm, for now we're going to call this third point simply contentment. God gives to his people contentment. But I really struggled with how to name this point because I couldn't really find a word that would accurately describe what Asaph is saying here. Contentment, fulfillment, I even thought of the word satisfaction. But I have to admit, 
I have a problem with the word satisfaction. And I think many of you of my generation, or even a little older or a little younger, do as well. Because back in the 1960s, a group called the Rolling Stones had a huge mega hit called Satisfaction. And you know what? They really nailed it. Because the tune that they put to that song just fits perfect. I mean, there's a rhythm to the word satisfaction. And they nailed it. They got it. It's hard to separate in our minds that song from that word. All right? So I thought, if I use that term, it might be more of a distraction than a help. <laughs> but you know what? Without realizing it, the Rolling Stones gave us a perfect illustration of what Aesop is talking about in this verse. It's a negative illustration, but nevertheless, it proves the point that Aesop is making. Now, the song Satisfaction came out in 1965. It was written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, who is the lead guitarist and sometimes plays rhythm guitar for the Rolling Stones. And the Rolling Stones actually formed in 1962. Now they had sung previously, they even had a name called the Blues Boys, but when they got a new manager and reorganized in 1962 and began playing new venues, they found immediate success. So much so that less than two years later, by the beginning of 1964, when we saw the start of what has come to be known as the British Invasion, next to the Beatles, the Rolling Stones were one of the top bands that came to America and began to play. They gathered a great following and went strong for decades. In fact, they're still playing. And Satisfaction was indeed their all-time biggest hit. So here they are, come to America in 1964, receive as great a following here as they had in England and on the continent. And a year later, they came out with a song entitled Satisfaction, also referred to as I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Now these guys are on top of the world. They have more money than they can spend They have everything money could buy. They have fame. They have girls. They have all the booze they can drink and all the drugs they may care to use as long as they're not caught by the authorities, but occasionally they were. And yet they come out with a song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And the second line says, but I try and I try and I try and I try but I can't get no satisfaction. Whether it's driving around in my car, listening to the radio, and someone comes on and gives me useless information, or I watch TV, and a man tells me how white my shirts can be, or I can't find the right girl, 
They had everything except for one thing. They had no satisfaction in spite of all they had. And then in 1969, just a few years later, a gal who started her career as a big band singer by the name of Peggy Lee in the early 1940s came out with a song called, Is That All There Is? It was good enough to win her a Grammy that year, but the song begins with her as a young girl and their house catches on fire. And she says, I, I'll never forget the look in my dad's face as he carried me out of that house and I watched my world burn to the ground. But after the fire was put out, I asked, is that all there is to a fire? And then she goes on, and when I was 12, my daddy took me to the circus and I saw the clowns and the elephants and the lady in the pretty pink dress who walked the high wire. But after the circus was over, I asked myself, is that all there is to a circus? And then she met the perfect boy and she fell in love. And they had a wonderful time, but then he left her. And she asked, is that all there is to love? And then finally she contemplates death. And she refers to death as that one last disappointment. And after each verse of this song, there's a refrain that goes like that. If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. If that's all there is. If that's all there is. Can you relate to any of this? I can. I can remember before I became a believer and I was in college and right on High Street. Now, in Columbus, High Street is the main avenue running north and south. You could go several miles south and get to the, the heart of downtown Columbus. You could consider north to the northern suburbs, actually, High Street is route, U.S. Route 23. It runs all the way up into Michigan and south all the way down to Florida. But there was a club that was located right on High Street across the street from the campus of Ohio State called the Agora. You had to join that club in order to get in, but it was a nominal fee, and they brought in fantastic bands. It was just a great spot to go to hear good music and to have a good time. And I can remember being in the Agora one night. Now, at the time, I was still in the College of Optometry. Our studies were much too demanding to do anything like that during the week. But come the weekend, boy, we broke loose. And that place was a great place to go. We heard great bands. And I can remember being there one time with a bunch of my friends, good friends, listening to a great band. There were girls at our table. We could buy all the beer that we would want to consume. And I found myself sitting there somewhat bored. 
And I asked myself, does it get any better than this? Is this as good as it gets? And I couldn't think of any way to improve that night. And so I concluded, yes, this must be about as good as it gets. And I resolved that it was. Well, we know differently, don't we? Even as Asaph tells us, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In contrast to what the world offers. Isn't this a wonderful picture? That we can reach that same state as Isaiah and look at life in that way. And I have to say that since I became a Christian, when I am studying God's Word, whether for my own personal study or preparing to teach, when I'm praying, when I'm in fellowship with other believers, when I'm in church, I have never again asked myself, is this as good as it gets? Because I don't need to. Because I don't know how it could get any better. Now, do you remember at the beginning of this message a few moments ago, I said that I really didn't know how to name this point. I don't know how to refer to it. And then I came to the realization that the problem I was having is that there is no one word in English that is big enough to encompass what Asaph is talking about in this passage. The thing that results from reaching the state where Asaph is here cannot be captured with just one word in English. But it can be captured with one word in Hebrew. And it is the word shalom. Now, you may have heard of the word shalom, and usually most people, when they hear the word shalom, they think of peace, because that's the way it's usually translated into English. But it is far more than just peace. Now, you may know as well that when the Jews use the term shalom to greet one another, both to say hello and to say goodbye. And do you know what they're really saying when they say to one another shalom? They're really saying, well, this, this word comes from a root, root word meaning to be complete to be whole, to be sound. It has the idea of fullness. If we were to try to sum it up in one English word, the closest we could come would be the word well-being. But what this word means is well-being in all of the following ways, in health, in welfare, in our inner peace, in terms of safety, tranquility, prosperity, harmony, 
It means to be at rest. And it refers to the absence of agitation or discord. Let me repeat those. To have shalom means to be complete, to be whole, to be sound in the following areas of our lives, in terms of our health, our welfare, our inner peace, our safety, our tranquility, our prosperity, our harmony. It means to be at rest and to have the absence of agitation or discord. Isn't that a wonderful state to be in? And really, they didn't realize it, but what the Rolling Stones were looking for, and to the extent that Peggy Lee's life reflected what she was singing, she didn't write the song, but to the extent that she could identify with that song, they didn't realize it, but they were looking for more than what they could even express. What they were looking for was shalom. Now this shalom can come only from God. Adam and Eve experienced shalom in the Garden of Eden, but they lost it in the fall. And indeed, God himself desires that we have shalom. God indeed desires that we should experience this kind of life. And so in Isaiah 9-6, which begins with the words, For unto you a child is born, unto us a son is given, one of the names that is given to the Messiah who would come is Prince of Peace, Prince of Shalom. That is, Jesus came to give us Shalom. And this peace would characterize his person and his entire ministry. And do you remember the words of the angels? To the shepherds on that night when Jesus was born, glory to God in the highest, and on earth shalom to those with whom he is well pleased. I hope from now on when you hear the word peace, read it in the Bible, you'll think of more than just peace. You'll think of the fullness of this term, shalom. Now, our natural state is just the opposite. We are in total rebellion against God. We are constantly stirred up, agitated, and encountering in life one problem after another. But notice what we read in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, Verses 1 and 2, this is what we read. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Yes, since we have been justified by peace, we have shalom. We know too that one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. Love, joy, peace. Now there's one thing that's very interesting about the New Testament, and that is, except for Luke, every writer of the New Testament was Jewish. And as they wrote, they wrote in Greek, but they're thinking in Hebrew. So when they write the word peace, which is translated into English as peace. They're thinking shalom. So when you read in your testament, in your New Testaments, the word peace, it is indeed that word shalom. And by the way, the alternative, the problems that were expressed by the Rolling Stones and by Peggy Lee. Do you know there's a whole book in the Bible that addresses that problem of the emptiness and futility of life apart from God? It's the book Ecclesiastes. And sadly, Solomon in all his wisdom for a time slipped, made wrong decisions. And that book of Ecclesiastes tells the consequences of those wrong choices. You can go through school, you can go through life experiencing the school of hard knocks, or you can read the book of Ecclesiastes and avoid what Solomon encountered in his life. But when we come to this verse, there's a problem here. Notice, the first line, we're okay with this. Whom have I in heaven but you? Most of us are okay with that. Yeah, we have chosen God. We might say, well, who else is in heaven to choose from? Well, there are the angels. And also we know from the book of Job, all that Job went through, keep in mind, was initiated by God. It was God who called Satan to him and then said, have you considered my servant Job? So Satan is in the heavenly places. It's a very, very interesting passage in Daniel chapter 10, where Daniel had prayed to God for help in interpreting a vision. And finally an angel came to him and said, from the day your prayers were first uttered, you were heard. But I was detained by the prince of Persia. Do you know what that refers to? That refers to a demon. Because then he says, but Michael, who is a great prince, that is Michael the archangel, helped, came to help. Do you see the point that's being made? There are de There's a there is a spiritual battle that goes on that we know very little about. 
because only occasionally are the curtains parted and we get a glimpse in scripture of what's going on. But there are indeed also demonic forces. And behind all the false religions is the angel of light who seeks to deceive us. Yes, there are a lot of choices that can be made. And even in heavens as well, the sun, the stars, the moon. We know that the ancient Egyptian worshipped the sun. But Aesop says, for me, whom have I have in heaven but you? So for most of us, that's not an issue. We've made that decision. But notice then he goes on to say, And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What about the young person who is about to graduate from college and they desire to land a good job? Is that wrong? Is that contrary to what Asaph is saying here? And on earth I desire nothing besides you. What about the person who is single, that desperately desires to get married, to find that right person to spend the rest of their life with, and to begin to have children and raise a family? Is it wrong to desire to get married? What about the parents that have a child that is very, very sick? Is it wrong for them desire to desire that their child get well? I don't know about you, but if you've seen the advertisements on TV for St. Jude's Hospital or Shriners Hospital, those commercials can be very gut-wrenching. If you put yourself in the shoes of those parents, some of whom all they want and desire is that their child live. Is it wrong for them to have that desire? And what about the man that dreads getting up every morning because he hates his job? He is bored to tears day in and day out, barely making enough money to make ends meet for his family. Is it wrong for him to desire a better job? one that is more suited to his talents and his abilities? Are any of us really so stoic that we can say we have no desires, that we, de we have God and therefore we desire nothing on earth? The first thing we should ask ourselves, is that even biblical? Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So here is David saying in Psalms 37 that he acknowledges we have desires. Now, at first, when I was a young Christian, I thought that verse meant, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you what you want. But that's not what it means. It means if you delight yourself in God, 
God will begin to transform your desires so that your desires will correspond to what God desires for you. That's how we walk in the will of God. Also, we read in the New Testament, in Matthew 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Well, what is it that we ask for? What is it that we seek but the fulfillment of our desires? Jesus seems to have no problem with our having desires. And even in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We are expressing desires as the Lord taught us to pray. So how can Asaph say, and if, Lord, if I have you, there is nothing on earth that I desire. Well, the key to solving this dilemma is to recall that the Bible has different forms of literature. The Old Testament begins with historic books, books of the history primarily of the nation of Israel. We call those historic narrative books. They run all the way from the opening books of the Bible, the Pentateuch beginning with Genesis, all the way through the book of Nehemiah. And then 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And then the Bible concludes with books of prophecy, running all the way from Isaiah through Malachi. But in between are books of Hebrew poetry, the poetical books. Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesi Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And you know that in English, poetry is very different from prose. It's written in a different way, it follows different rules, and the same is true with Hebrew poetry. In fact, it's even more so with Hebrew poetry. And the chief characteristic of Hebrew poetry is what we call parallelism. So if you look at this verse, verse 25, you can see that the word earth in the second line corresponds with the word heaven in the first line. The word desire in the second line corresponds with the word have in the first line. But even more important for our purposes here, is the first line determines the parameters within which the second line is to be understood. So therefore, what he is talking about in the first line is, what do I have in heaven that I worship, that I serve, and that I look to for my salvation? And so when he comes to the second line, He's then saying, and on earth, I have nothing more besides you to worship, to serve, and to look to for my salvation. Now, John Calvin was right when he said that our hearts 
are idle factories. And yes, indeed, people develop all kinds of things that they can look to to find their fulfillment, their purpose, and their happiness in life. Whether it's money, material possessions, our jobs, prestige, power, entertainment, sex, alcohol, drugs, whatever. Anything that we look to for fulfillment in life, for meaning, purpose, or satisfaction that we put above God becomes an idol. So all that Aesop is saying is here, I have none of that. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you as my God. Let me give you the coil amplified paraphrase of this verse and maybe it will help to make the point. Whom have I in heaven but you to worship to serve and to look to for my salvation. And on earth there is nothing besides you that I look to, to worship, to serve, or for my salvation. You see, he's not explaining all desires. He's simply saying that in terms of what I serve as my God, there is only you in heaven or on earth. Now, there, when we look at the poetic books of the Bible, they make up about a third of the Old Testament. But there is more Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament than just that. A good portion of some of the prophets, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, practically the whole book of Lamentations. Large portions of the minor prophets are also written in the form of Hebrew poetry. And quite honestly, unless you understand Hebrew poetry, you'll never fully understand those parts of the Bible. Now, I've already mentioned this to Dennis. This coming fall, I am more than willing to lead a Bible study in how to understand Hebrew poetry. To look at these, there are various forms of parallelism, and understanding those will open up these portions of Scripture in a way that you've probably never understood them before. And Dennis said that he was fine with a study like that. He just wasn't sure how much interest there would be in the congregation. So let me ask you for your help. If this is something that you think you would like to do, <laughs> if you think this is a study that you would like to be a part of, let me know. You can let me know. <laughs> We're starting with one. If you think this is a study that you would like to be in, you can let me know after the service. You can email me. If you're watching this by way of the internet and you live here in Williamsburg, I'm in the church directory. 
If you're not a part of our church or you don't have a directory, but you would like to come, you're more than welcome. I've already checked with Kathy, our church secretary, and she said you're welcome to call the church, leave your name and contact information with her, and she'll pass it along to me. But if you think this is something you would like to be a part of, let me know. I'm not asking you to sign your name in blood, but if you think this would be of interest, let me know and we'll proceed with it this coming fall. So as we look at this verse one more time, how gracious God is that when we can say like Asaph, whom have I in heaven but you? And can honestly say, and there's nothing on earth that I have beside you, God, to worship, to serve, and to look to for salvation, then we will have God's shalom. Let's pray. Our Father, we stand amazed at how good you are to the likes of us. So undeserving, so insignificant and yet you loved us enough that you sent your only son to earth that he might die in our place to give us salvation and new life. Our Father, we thank you for what we see in this verse and for the shalom that can be ours. And for this, we give you thanks and praise. Amen. Amen.